I think he's going to face the legal repercussions of his actions. There's no doubt about it. That's Democratic Congressman Jamie Raskin from Maryland. He's a key member of the House Select Committee looking into the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The committee wasn't set up to prosecute former President Donald Trump. But in Raskin's mind... I think that we've been able to tell a very compelling, fact-based story about what happened. And the public now understands all of the essential elements of the narrative. Donald Trump just refused to take no for an answer from the American people when he lost the election to Joe Biden by more than 7 million votes. The January 6th committee has already unearthed shocking details, details that expand our understanding about what allowed the violence to unfold that day. I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't I think care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Now the committee promises to do even more. They're expected to schedule at least one more hearing for this fall. And they're planning to make their closing argument about why Trump should be held responsible and what to do to protect democracy. But will it matter to the American public? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi, in for Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, September 13th. Today, we sit down with Congressman Jamie Raskin to hear what's next for the committee. Despite what these high-profile hearings have turned up so far, Trump's baseless election claims haven't gone away. On the ballot this fall, there are almost 200 Republican candidates who deny that Joe Biden won the presidential election. So we wanted to ask Congressman Raskin about the committee's loose ends and what he has to say to critics from both the right and the left. Later in the show, we hear an emotional and historic moment from last night's Emmys. But first, my conversation with Congressman Raskin. So given the scope of the committee's work, the committee's work is not done. Looking ahead to the fall, how many hearings will the committee hold? And what kinds of arguments will you be trying to make and evidence you are seeking that is different from what we've heard thus far? Well, I think that um, our remaining hearing or two, uh, and we haven't decided yet exactly how to shape all of it, but whatever remaining hearings we have on the investigative side, we'll be tying up loose ends, trying to answer questions like, well, what happened to those um, thousands of texts that have gone missing in Secret Service communications and Department of Defense? Um, what exactly did Donald Trump have in mind uh, for going up to the Capitol um, and completing um, the attempt to nullify electoral college votes and uh, kick the whole contest into a contingent election in the House of Representatives? How did he think this was going to happen when he got up there and why was he so adamant about going there? So I think there, there are some loose ends that it would be good if we can clarify them, but the, the basic structure of um, these events is now understood by the American people and that's a remarkable breakthrough. 
on your part, are you interested in hearing from Ginny Thomas, Newt Gingrich, Mike Pence? Ginny Thomas um, is not a central figure in my view, the way that some others are, people like Roger Stone and Michael Flynn and Steve Bannon. Um, uh, she certainly was an avid, enthusiastic supporter of all the efforts to overturn the 2020 election results and the so-called John Eastman plan. And she was definitely a satellite organizer um, in support of both coup-like and insur insurrectionary activity. But um, so, but, you know, we're interested in collecting evidence from everybody who has evidence uh, to offer. Um, but, um, you know, we, we like to interview people first. We've interviewed more than a thousand people and obviously just several handful of them have been um, invited to testify before the whole country. We obviously can't have a thousand witnesses. Yeah, that would be a lot. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm wondering for these people who will be asked to testify um, if they do, given the backlash that those individuals who testified earlier this summer received from fellow Republicans, if you were to put yourself in those shoes, why should these other people testify? Like, if you were in their position, would you, if you were them, given that backlash they received? Well, it's what the rule of law demands, and it's what patriotism demands. And we've seen some great patriots come forward to say that they have to put the truth in the country and the rule of law ahead of personal or partisan commitments. I mean, that's what it means to be a patriot. Um, and, you know, the committee obviously saw a very striking example of that kind of constitutional patriotism in Cassidy Hutchinson, um, who is a young woman uh, who does not have uh, the stature and the power and the connections of a lot of the older people who've been invited to testify. And yet she had the bravery and the conviction and the patriotism to step forward and to tell the truth. Um, and that's what we're asking of everyone. And um, to me, it's been a remarkable and reassuring thing to see how many people have come forward who have been eager to tell the truth. Now, undoubtedly, there's some people who are refusing to tell the truth and are refusing to come in and acting in contempt of Congress. But those people are the exception and not the rule. I'm also thinking about the former Vice President Mike Pence. Many people would be fascinated and do want to hear from Mike Pence. Is that one person you do want to hear from to testify? And if so, what are you hoping to learn from such testimony? Well, again, I just speak for myself here as one member. Right. Um, but Mike Pence was the target of a conspiracy to um, shut down electoral college vote counting, overthrow the election, and install Donald Trump as the president. I mean, I heard people chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Um, and he was driven out of the Capitol um, building in the, the chambers of the Senate and the House uh, by a bloodthirsty mob that meant business. Um, so I think he, of all people, should have every uh, incentive and every intention to come forward and tell the truth the best that he understands it. And obviously, he's got a limited view. And like everybody else, he is subject to the 
other influences in his life. I mean, he might be running for president. Um, and so we would have to um, look at everything he says in the totality of the context of his testimony. Congressman, I wanted to ask you to step back and think about this past summer. At the same time that the January 6th Select Committee was holding these hearings that were dominating the news cycle, there were more than 100 people who denied Biden won the presidential election, who won their primary races. I'm wondering, what do you think of the strength of election denialism right now? And how does this juxtaposition show the limitations of how much these public hearings can do when it comes to swaying public opinion? Well, election denialism is a dimension of fascistic politics. Fascist political parties have certain characteristics in common with each other. They're generally organized around a um, an authoritarian cult of personality um, and one charismatic leader who dictates the truth to everyone else. And fascistic, authoritarian, autocratic parties um, will um, disrespect the results of any elections that don't favor them. And they will also embrace political violence or refuse to disavow political violence, or they will apologize for political violence and make excuses and alibis for it. So election denialism is anchored in that ideological system of fascistic politics. But I guess I'm wondering, given this force that you're describing, what kind of impact can these public hearings that did unearth really shocking things have in in changing that landscape and the power of that sort of impulse? And I'm also thinking about some Republican allies of yours who have lost their primaries, like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, who also sits on the committee. You know, I've ordered a whole bunch of books about religious cults and deprogramming and how you get people to disengage from cultish behavior and uh, worship of um, authoritarian leaders. And it's interesting because they generally converge around two propositions. One is that you, in trying to get people to get out of it, you must insist on the facts and you must insist on the difference between truth and reality and then ideology and disinformation and fantasy. That's point one. And I think that the January 6th Select Committee has been doing that very effectively. And I think we've pierced the ideological sound barrier and we're getting to some people. Um, but secondly, in order to really pull people away from that form of ideological and totalitarian thinking, um, you need to show people concern and respect and affection. Congressman, I'm wondering why you do think that the hearings were able to break through that, as you described it, ideological sound barrier, because it it doesn't seem like polling might bear out that public opinion has swayed dramatically or significantly in light of the hearings. Well, yeah, I'm not someone who's a big believer in polls all the time. I mean, but I but I, I travel a lot and I've gotten out to a lot of people's legislative districts. I've gotten out to a lot of states and I get a huge amount of mail and email and so on. And I hear from Democrats, independents, Republicans, and others. And um, 
I get the overwhelming sense that people are following the facts and the details in a really scrupulous way. People write me all the time with new theories and new leads and things that, that they think we need to fill in uh, the picture on. Um, you know, somebody wrote me a letter I got today about Michael Flynn's brother and how he's been totally overlooked in this process, but he's in the Pentagon and we need to check him out. And so everybody has got a theory, you know, and I know that there are lots of Republicans also that feel as if Donald Trump doesn't represent them and um, they don't want to be a party of conspiracy theory and uh, dogma and disinformation and lies. And I, again, I hear from people every day. I understand it's a trickle compared to most Republicans who are still with Donald Trump. But if Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney and the others who voted to impeach or to convict represent even 10 or 15 percent of the Republican Party, um, that is a very serious thing. I don't know that they could recover from the damage of losing 15 or 10 or even 5 percent of Republicans across the country. You know, speaking of how everyone was able to pay attention to these hearings, that the summer hearings, many of them were broadcast on the major networks on prime time. I'd say with the idea or perception that it was important for the committee to make its case before the American public, it was well produced from just a media and television standpoint. Will you be pushing for the same kind of television coverage of subsequent hearings? And if the committee doesn't get it, is that a blow to the committee's efforts and efficacy? Well, I will be pushing for that. And I will say, I think that the January 6th hearings have set the template for what congressional hearings should be about um, in the future in general. Um, imagine if we could have hearings about gun violence that um, were this succinct and to the point and that told a story to the country. It doesn't mean everybody's going to agree in the final analysis about what to do, but at least we could set forward the facts to the country. What if we could have a hearing about or a set of hearings and an investigation into climate change that could also tell a riveting story to the public based on the facts, based on expert witnesses um, and sworn testimony. I guess the amount of attention these hearings have received also gets at some of the criticisms of this committee. And I want to ask you about some of those critics of the committee who have, you know, on the right called it a political stunt. But there are even progressive activists who have said that congressional Democrats have a fixation on Trump and are spending too much time on this and have dismissed the need for the committee. What would you say to respond to that kind of criticism? Well, from the beginning, we heard some of our critics on the right say this was a partisan stunt and it was a partisan investigation. Um, and I, I can see why you might think that because uh, the overwhelming number of witnesses have been Republicans. And so it looks like maybe this is an all Republican enterprise, but it's not. We have Democrats involved, too. And we've got a bipartisan committee that's in search of one thing, which is the truth and the facts. Well, and, I'm sorry, a, a bipartisan committee in that there's there's two Republicans, right, uh, on this committee. Um, yeah. The the chair, Benny Thompson, it's a Democrat. The vice chair, Liz Cheney, is a Republican uh, from Wyoming. But uh Kevin McCarthy decided to boycott it. And so uh, these were the only two Republicans who were willing essentially to 
um, you know, this the attempt to go around this um, dictate from Kevin McCarthy not to participate. Our hearings are not just about Donald Trump. We've spoken to more than a thousand witnesses, and uh, our report is not about one guy, and we have no prosecutorial authority. And if he's prosecuted, that has to do with the Department of Justice, and that's his own problem. We're looking at the whole structure of political tyranny and authoritarianism and fascistic type tactics that we're up against. And that goes way beyond one guy. It's not just Trump, it's Trumpism. And it's not just Trumpism, but it's other forms of autocratic and theocratic um, and kleptocratic governance and politics that are a threat to democracy in the century. Congressman, I, I did have one last question for you. Looking into the future, we could be in a world where election-denying candidates win their races in November. Many are on the ballot. And Trump ends up facing no actual legal accountability for January 6th or, and even becomes the Republican nominee. If all that takes place, what message would that send to regular Americans? Well, all Americans are regular Americans. All Americans are citizens um, who have to stand up for democratic institutions as they exist and strive for a more perfect union by improving and expanding democracy. And no president made the argument more strongly for that than the great Abraham Lincoln, whose bust sits upon my desk and I'm looking at right now. He rejected the Know Nothing Party, an anti-immigrant an immigrant bashing party, which he thought was a shame and a spectacle. And he, of course, rejected disunion and slavery and secession and insurrection and violence against the union. All of those things that we are shockingly hearing people talk about today. He rejected those forms of extremism. And he said we had to maintain union and liberty together, the union of the country, the freedom of the people and the constitutional democracy that protects all of it. But I guess like to think about those cynics that you referenced, uh, one big takeaway could be if, you know, these election denying candidates win and and Trump ends up being politically successful. A takeaway could be there are actually no real consequences for denying elections and undermining the democratic process. What would you say to that? I would say two things. Number one is um you know, I'm not in the prognostication business. I'm in the mobilization business. I'm organizing people. And I invite anybody who wants to sit back to wait for some kind of horrific episode to unfold, like the one you just outlined, to get involved instead. Uh, but the second thing I would say is Trump has already been defeated twice in the popular vote. Hillary beat him by more than 3 million votes. And Joe Biden beat him by more than 7 million votes. And uh, you know, the cult of Donald Trump is small and it is shrinking all the time. They thrive on the most anti-democratic instruments in the country, like voter suppression, like gerrymandering of state and federal uh, congressional and state legislative districts, like the use of the filibuster to block voting rights legislation, um, like the manipulation of the Electoral College, which is itself an undemocratic institution in the Constitution, which needs to be transformed and ultimately um, overthrown, 
constitutionally, nonviolently with the national popular vote. So um, I'm with John Dewey, who said that uh, the only solution to the ills of democracy is more democracy, because what we're suffering from in America today is not democracy. We're suffering from anti-democracy. Thank you, Congressman, for your time. I appreciate it very much. Congressman Jamie Raskin is a Democrat from Maryland. He serves on the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. This story was produced by Arjun Singh. After the break, we talk about the moment that stunned the Emmy's audience. We'll be right back. So Cheryl Lee Ralph is announced as the winner of Best Supporting Actress in a Comedy Series, walks up to stage and starts singing. I am an endangered species, but I sing no victim song. I don't think any of us at home were expecting that. I seriously doubt anyone in the audience was expecting that either. That's Sonia Rao, a pop culture reporter at The Post, who covered the Emmy Awards show on Monday. She said there were some big winners of the night. Succession, White Lotus, Ted Lasso. But the moment that said something bigger about Hollywood and what it means to make it came when Cheryl Lee Ralph won for her role in Abbott Elementary, an ABC sitcom about public school teachers created by Quinta Brunson. Cheryl Lee Ralph is an actress who's been in the industry for decades at this point. Um, her biggest role early on was Dreamgirls on Broadway. Um, she was nominated for a Tony, actually, so, you know, made quite a splash early on. But she's been on television shows for years as well, mainly sitcoms, I would say. She was in Moesha, which is where I know her from, and more recently, of course, has been in Abbott Elementary. And Sonia said there are good reasons why Ralph's acceptance speech resonated with so many people. Cheryl Lee Ralph has been really open about the fact that, you know, she wasn't necessarily waiting for an Emmy, but maybe it was surprising that she hasn't been, you know, given one in the past. And so I think, you know, as an older Black woman who's been in the industry for so long, you know, walking on stage and saying, I am an endangered species is powerful. It's fascinating. It's a really interesting framing, I think, of that moment. And she's really self-aware. She understands what she means in the industry to people, you know, younger than her, people her age. And I think even to people like Quinta Brunson, you know, the creator of Abbott Elementary, who was really looking for kind of a heavyweight actress, I would say, to play this role. And Cheryl Lee Ralph, of course, was the right person for that. And I know I mean, I think the most powerful part of Shirley Ralph singing on stage was that sustained note. I think, I mean, if you're going to get really, you know, English lit about it, the metaphor there, right? She's just, she's holding it. She's there. She's, it's full force. It's powerful and it's sustained. And I think that's what her career is, right? That's what her career has been. I think she was so confident to go up there, even though I think from her facial expressions, walking up stage maybe wasn't expecting this award. I don't think she felt like she was a shoe in um, for this Emmy. And so I think to have that set of emotions while you're walking up to stage and then be able to get up there 
and belt and say, you know, I'm here, I deserve it, even if I didn't think I was going to be here on stage. I, f- I was really moved by the power behind her voice. The Emmys aren't unusual in award season in that they are predominantly white, I would say. Um, it's a reflection of Hollywood, right? So the more white Hollywood is, the more white award season uh, is as well. I think this year's Emmy ceremony was interesting because a lot of the big winners, you know, the shows I mentioned, Succession, The White Lotus, I mean, it's even in the name, <laughs> coincidentally, both of those shows feature predominantly white casts. But I think there were really great moments um, throughout this ceremony where, you know, non-white people did get time to shine. Um, Cheryl Lee Ralph, of course, is the big one. I think Lizzo's speech um, for Best Competition series was really powerful as well. She was saying, you know, I wanted to see someone like me on screen when I was a kid. I just didn't realize that it would have to be me. And I think that was amazing as well because it's reminding people, you know, these are people who didn't really realize that they maybe were the ones who had to do it themselves, you know. I think it's easy to be cynical about Hollywood award shows and to say, you know, this is the elite, this doesn't really mean anything to anyone beyond this industry. I think watching Cheryl Lee Ralph get on stage meant so much more than, you know, maybe some of the other wins have to the average person. I think everyone knows someone like her in their own life. I think there are a lot of people, especially women, and, you know, in her case, an older black woman, I think there are a lot of people who just haven't gotten their due. Um, and who have been putting in the work over the years. And to see that recognized, you know, on a national platform like this is really powerful. And to say, hey, you know what? We do notice you. We notice what you've been doing and we appreciate it. Sonia Rao is a pop culture reporter for The Post. The story was produced by Eliza Dennis and Natalie Bettendorf. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. We also wanted to let you know about tomorrow's show. We have an exciting conversation with Gretchen Reynolds, a new wellness columnist for The Post. And it's about the catch-22 of sitting. Many of us are trying to exercise. We are trying to get in the amount of exercise that is recommended. But then we just sit the entire rest of the day. And it looks like what happens when we do that is we undermine the, the benefits of exercise. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.